episode 96, Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. Now this is the debut novel of Tamsin Muir and volume one of the Lock Room Trilogy. It's a sort of science fantasy, I'll talk about that in a moment, um, published in 2019. Um, so I guess it's a rare example of me covering a novel that's actually up to date. Um, okay, so yeah, the science fantasy thing is described in Wikipedia as science fantasy. I think that's a really useful distinction to use. Since previous episodes, I talked about soft and hard science fiction, where soft emphatically does not mean not hard, but rather it covers the soft sciences, the humanities, etc., um, where hard SF covers physics. So science fantasy is a useful distinction here. This is a fantasy novel. The fact that it's set on different worlds uh, in a far future setting is mostly colour. I mean, it could be different continents in the same world uh, if you retell the same story. But there is a quality that making them different worlds brings to the story. Part of that is to do with the vacuum of space that separates the worlds, because that's actually an important thing to do with the magical theory. Um, so obviously I'm going to say something about that in the remarks section. As I said, this is part of a trilogy, and my partner suggested that, you know, directly after I read this one, I should read the second book, which is called Harrow the Ninth. Um, and I went back and forth on whether I should cover both books, but I decided, no, I'm not. I'm just going to do this one for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, talking about two books in a trilogy would maybe be a bit weird. I don't know. But more importantly, I feel that the first book in a trilogy must be self-contained. I can excuse an unresolved plot or a cliffhanger in a second book, but the first one needs to stand on its own merits. It needs to resolve. It can leave some things open for further exploration, but the arc that it describes needs to resolve. And it does. Um, the ending does leave some questions open. That's fine. It's a trilogy. Um, but it still resolves. And um, I am going to be caning my way through the sequel shortly, I expect. But as usual, uh, I'll do a synopsis followed by some remarks and then some final words on complementary media. Here we go. The synopsis. So the setting is a stellar empire of nine houses focused on nine worlds around the star Dominicus, ruled over by the king undying, an immortal necromancer. Now the king is served by his lictors, other immortal necromancers, and collectively the empire is called the Cohort, and this has been the state for 10,000 years. The Empire is founded on the magical science of necromancy, and each house has its own speciality, including um, transference of energies, siphoning souls, making undead constructs, and so on. And necromancers are powered by Thanergy, the energy of death, and for this reason they hate space, where nothing has ever lived, so there can be no Thanergy. Uh, but they do like places where lots of people have previously died, you know, like battlefields. Now, I'm wondering if there is going to be something coming forward when they talk about more about the, the wars that the empires are fighting. But at the moment, this novel is focused inward, inside the empire. So we have a bunch of characters, and really importantly, traditionally in this world, a necromancer is paired with a cavalier. So we have, in this book, eight examples of such pairings from all houses save the first. Uh, the second house right up to the ninth, of which Gideon and Harrow are representatives of that house. Now, a point of view character is Gideon. She is the cavalier of the ninth house, and her necromancer, Harrowhawk, is the heir to that house, and so the only person who can be the necromancer. And Gideon and Harrowhawk have grown up hating each other. You know, the two have grown up being the only kids 
the other has ever known, because a whole generation of the Ninth House, excepting those two, was lost to plague in the past. So Harakork is the treasured heir who has supposedly killed her parents five years ago and has been animating them so that they make public appearances. And then Gideon is this mysterious foundling who was basically that this is the ninth planet is also a prison planet and her mother apparently jumped from the prison which is like a couple of miles up and uh, took her with uh, took her with her onto the surface basically crashing down on the surface and putting all of the energy in her spacesuit into crash protection for the the infant pod that she was carrying and she died um, and they also tried to find out why she did this by drawing her soul back into uh, back into her body to interrogate it. You know, the old speak with dead thing. Um, and all she did was just scream Gideon's name. So what they've got anyway is they've fallen into these roles, Harrow and Gideon, of a spoiled heir and a red-headed orphan with a prodigious talent for sword fighting. You know, so naturally they fall into the roles of necromancer and cavalier, respectively. Um, now, there are seven other pairs, as I mentioned, who I'm not going to itemise in detail, but they do represent certain archetypes like entitled nobles from the third house, uh, the military from the second house, um, introspective scholars from the sixth, religious types from the eighth. Uh, they're all really interesting. They're all, all really boldly drawn. And the remaining few characters are the teacher, who is their host on the world of the first at Canaan House, where these proving grounds are. And then there's a few characters uh, back on the world of the ninth. So the hook, there is a bit of a preamble with Gideon where the we, we first are introduced to Gideon where she's trying to make an escape as she has made many times before from the ninth. She's forged documents to get her onto a shuttle to take her off world where she can settle on another world. And Harrow knows this and they have a big argument about it. And Harrow basically tricks her into a into a fight which is says oh if you win it then you get to go if i win then i'll let you go but you have to come into this important meeting first um and harrow kind of cheats with um conjured skeletons but anyway um it's set up so that uh this information this special meeting that they're getting to is a communication from the the king undying the emperor which has gone out to all houses saying that um, the King Undying is looking for new candidates to become lictors and has invited the brightest of each house to the complex at Canaan House on the world of the first. And there, they're set the challenge to uncover the mysteries of the house, in particular its lower levels, which include a number of labs, libraries, locked rooms with magical experiments and puzzles. Uh, and it becomes apparent that you know, the, these eight pairs of characters are cut off from the rest of the empire. When they landed, there's there's no communication off-world. And also, there are no apparent rules of engagement or obvious victory conditions. They're given a couple of cryptic, um, cryptic clues by the teacher, saying you, you mustn't go through any locked door that you're not permitted to go through, which is a weird thing to say to start with. There's not anything else. The teacher is also not physically able to go to the lower levels and explore them. Um... All they know really is that there's an opportunity to become a lictor and become effectively immortal and um, wage war on behalf of the king undying on other on the frontiers of the empire, which aren't really discussed in, in any meaningful way in this book. They are warned that the lower level is incredibly dangerous in a, a, a non-specific way. 
but that's about it. So, as you can expect with this bunch of highly ambitious and, uh, you know, competent characters, um, they're not sure if they should be directly competing or teaming up to solve a number of necromantic puzzles, which are, you know, really, really dangerous and also represent a series of magical theorems. There's a bit of uh, there's a bit of one-upmanship and a bit of a pissing contest. Uh, certain cavaliers are challenged to duels by other cavaliers. Well, the, the necromancers will usually issue the challenge and the cavalier will fight on their behalf. But um, there is a bit of interesting interplay between the characters, but otherwise it starts to become a race to work out the solution first and get the rewards in the form of keys, which further unlock other rooms on the lower level. So... Initially, you have this scramble for dominance in what appears to be a magical competition. You know, it very much reminded me of um, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Um, but then all of a sudden, bodies start piling up. So it, it goes from a sort of everyone here is alive and we're just competing to there's someone stalking everyone and some people are being murdered. Uh, so it kind of morphs from this sort of competition where the worst the characters are going to suffer is disappointment and uh, becomes a sort of cross between and then there were none and the hunger games you know where various characters are being picked off one by one and they they start to form alliances and draw battle lines between two camps you know they fight one another whilst trying to work out who the killer is and i felt this was really well done and as a reader i was going back and forth between characters looking for evidence that they were the bad guy lots of satisfying twists lots of action scenes i think that is a mark of a you know a good whodunit. Um, but it's also a story about the Ninth House and its own history, and it is subtitled The Locked Tomb Trilogy, and, and that tomb in question forms the heart of the Ninth's history and faith. And they're also the keepers of the locked tomb. They're also outsiders. So th there's a very notable bit early on where they turn up and they uh, they give some sort of religious litany and it becomes apparent to Gideon, our point of view character, how alien this is to everyone else, that they do not view the necromantic religion, magical religion, in the same way that they do. Um, and they are outsiders, effectively, and some houses even think that they should never have been allowed to persist in their bloodline. And then this feeds a wider black story and plot concerning the Lictors and other implied ancient beings who are also enemies of the Empire and the King Undying. Um, you know, th these enemies, as I said before, the King Undying opposes someone. And some of these are very ancient and powerful, but they're not really named, they're not really hinted at. They are not the villains in this story. Um, the cohort do battle against other stellar empires, and it's also implied that ancient and powerful things exist in this universe that oppose the king in dying, and the houses. And if they managed to get out of their prison, they would unmake the whole universe, you know, the usual thing. So to sum up, this is one of the things that I, I think that made the novel really great. Um, it does have this very broad scope and this implication of a wider new universe, but it manages to keep the scope of the narrative really focused on Canaan House and the locked room murder mystery. Uh, you know, so it, it ties in all the external mythical stuff, but it's very, very well focused in terms of the plot. It strikes a really great balance. Um, and at the same time, it develops Gideon and Harrowhawk's character arcs and their relationship. I think that's as far as I'm going to take the synopsis, because... It is obvious that there will be murders and there will be villains unmasked at the end with a number of red herrings. And that you will get all of this from this novel. It's worth reading. 
but you also get a really nicely realized setting and plot framework which I think I'd like to move on to talk about now and I've essentially got three bits I want to cover the first thing is about pairs of characters um, I think this is a, a genius idea to have two paired characters to bounce off one another so they can complement one another while trying to achieve tasks but at the same time they may have conflicting feelings about one another um, I think in general games these days are getting better and better about integrating characters into the same party and giving them shared backstory um, but the example in this book is also complementary competencies. You know, you have one warrior matched with one wizard, which means that they can share the tasks that they're set. And of course, you need a, a setting which throws up the right kind of challenges. Uh, so in Gideon the Ninth, you know, the necromancers have their fun with solving magical puzzles. And then the cavaliers also have fun because they're the ones who duel one another to resolve disputes, fight uh, dangerous constructs, and, and generally act as a meat shield. And, and they do duel in the book, you know, they fight for various reasons from showing off to, to fighting over keys that they've discovered, because there's only a limited number of keys to be had. Anyway, having that set up is not going to be hard for any role-playing system with magic and sword fighting. But the thing that makes it interesting in the book is how each pair of necromancer and cavalier have arrived at their roles from wildly different parts. In the Eighth House, they're genetically matched, in the third, I think it's like a union of noble families or something. And the fourth are um, teenagers, and they, they've been brought up from a very early age to just throw themselves onto frontline conflict, uh, and so on. Um, and the ninth are there because there's literally no one else there to make a pair. So it has to be Gideon and Harrowhawk. So it's two paired character classes with one shared backstory for, for why they're so closely bound. And I think you could have a lot of fun with pairing up characters like this, but also I think pairing up is part of the social order of the world, so it's baked into the setting as well. So I've got a few ideas about how you might actually practically do that in a role-playing game. Um, obviously, you could just agree with the playgroup to create groups of characters with your favourite system, and everyone creates their backstory collaboratively, um, and they agree to pair up. And if you are, if you're into asking leading questions about characters before play begins, you could have one person in the pair of characters answering on behalf of the other, for example, um, to you know to indicate how closely they have been tied over years in the past. Um, you obviously need a bit of trust at the table to do this, um, but to be honest, I've never had a problem with trust at the table. Um, it's probably because I'm very fortunate with the people I play with. Uh, but um, I think generally, as long as everyone's on the same page, that should be fine. Um, now, thinking more about this, some systems generate questions, particularly ones which are based around playbooks. So lots of different Powered by the Apocalypse will have, uh, they'll have questions that are asked about what is your relationship to another person? What, what other person had this experience with you sometime in the past? And um, those can be really great prompts. Um, I think you might want to focus them down just to be particularly about a pair of people. But if you don't have the questions set up in the system, then obviously the group has to come up with them. Um, I guess there's a, uh, I guess there's a risk that some people would, you know, just look to the ref to do the work here. I think it's even better if you can get everyone to ask questions, um, and be fans of everyone else's characters. Um, so 
I would probably have all the other players ask questions directed at one or both of the two PCs and have then those two PCs answer those questions, answer for one another, um, give things from their perspective. You know, they both answer the same question. Um, and, you know, they may have uh, the same version of events or they may have wildly different versions of events. Um, I guess the ref would support that by facilitating this sort of uh, session zero stuff you know they, they might frame say the first set of questions are I, I want to know about these characters very first impressions of one another so then one player might then ask how did they how were they introduced and another player might say what was the embarrassing thing one of them did right at that first meeting that always gets brought up in conversations afterwards and then, and then you know that the ref could then say, "Okay, we, we've talked about them growing up. Let's now talk about the first conflict that they faced together. You know, was it um, was it a physical conflict or a social conflict or or some other crisis? You know, and and that and then the ref invites them to uh, invites the other players to put more questions and explore this some more. I guess uh, three or four questions like that would do it before play starts. I mean, you don't want to have too many questions because then that dilutes the impact of each answer. But I think three or four would be quite fun um, because then you'll probably end up with a couple that stand out and those are the ones that, you know, you're, you're going to hang on to in terms of future development. And then uh, you might continue this approach throughout the game to elicit more information about backstory in play. And, and thinking about that, there are some systems which are set up for asking these questions in play. Whitehack, for example, asks players to provide context about why they should have an advantage in a situation based on their experience, based on their experience, and say, "I I did this at one point in the past, therefore I am good at um, scaling sheer surfaces or something, and therefore I should have an advantage on this role." You know, that, that would be a, an interesting one, except. You might have the other player in the pair answering or, or answering for that character, making up the reason, um, or you know the two players working together to make up the reason because they have a shared backstory. That's kind of like the just mostly establishing fluff, but going beyond just asking questions and establishing setting stuff. What about mechanical features that are shared between characters? What if advancement happens simultaneously for both characters and both have to fill up their experience track to get their advances at the same time? And then if you do that, what if there's an asymmetric effect for who fills up the track first or last? So say if you fill yours in last, you get to demand an emotional concession from the other character. There are the perhaps more obvious ones, you know, what if all the powers that are owned between the two characters come from a single energy pool that's um that's slightly boring uh, what about um what about if powers only work if both characters consent to them working at the same time um or what if on a partial hit and i'm thinking powered by the apocalypse type thing both of them get a downside uh, and lastly what if instead of a pair of characters, you have a single class played by two players or a single playbook that's split between two players? That'd be interesting. You know, you have shared clocks, shared hit point tracks, shared experience tracks, um, moves, 
Yeah, that might be the most elegant way of doing it. Certainly the most quick start con friendly way of doing it, because then you're handing two players a shared sheet in front of them and they'll probably hit the ground running a lot more easily. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of PBTA, not necessarily for all the moves, but generally because it's a, a well-written set of sheets, gets things moving really quickly. Um, and, and I think uh, that's what makes it particularly good. But I would say, um, just to close off this bit, if any listeners know of a system that already does this, I'd love to hear about it. Moving on, the second one I want to talk about is about the scenario. The setup is great. You know, they, they, they start the setting with a bunch of characters who are obviously matched against one another and then seeing who allies with whom. You know, as I said, feels a bit Harry Potter, Goblet of Fire, feels a bit Hunger Games. If you're going to run this, um, it would probably work as a sort of semi-LARP. You know, we, we used to play this thing called the Society Game back, back in the distant mists of time. Uh, and this was, um, the first one was ever called the Grand Conclave, Grand Conclave of Taxus. And it was a bunch of magicians who would basically sit around a table and have that annual meeting. Um, and they would talk to each other. They would have side conversations, do deals and politics. If needed, there was a dueling arena for the magicians. Um, and then you'd write a turn sheet that says, this is what I'm going to do in the year between Conclave meetings. And um, you basically get the whole world of Greyhawk to explore, and you could choose to research magical stuff, or you could choose to um, travel to different places and, and uh, fight in certain wars that were happening. Um, and uh, travel took a certain amount of time, and, and you could see where you're going on the on the uh, board. Uh, we, we played other games. One was about um, Celtic and Roman gods fighting in Roman Britain. And it also used a, 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 a map of the British Isles really effectively. So if I was going to like use that format to run Canaan House, where you have a bunch of characters all meeting together, all sort of showing off against one another, all with a vested interest in exploring the area and getting their own, um, getting their own rewards and resources, um, I would have, you know, a periodic meeting where the characters met together. Maybe it didn't make sense to have them all meeting at the same time, but they could be drawn together by the teacher for some reason. Um, but then you have the lower levels, which are there to explore and unlock the mysteries of, and each of them could choose which part of the lower levels to map out. You know, they, they could say, what I'm going to do with my turn this turn is explore part of the lower levels to improve our map. And, you know, they, they might end up developing bit, different bits of the map. They might choose to share the map with other people. Um, they might say, I've acquired a key. I want to explore this particular area with a, a locked room and uncover a puzzle. Or they might spend time researching a magical puzzle. That is what they need to do to get a key. So there's a number of ways you could play that out. And that structure would be pretty good for a sort of we are a bunch of characters going to explore a large area and map out, map out the bits and try to find the different pieces of information and piece it together. And then the alliances that we form in the LARP might allow us to put together the whole plot. The only problem with that is those things are quite resource intensive and we used to need about you know, three or four GMs to do that because the GMs really would have to map things out and they would be responsible for different groups of characters and keep an eye on 
who was doing what, and they had to obviously have weekly meetings to converse with one another to make sure that they were all on the same page regarding the world that they were presenting to the players. But it would work to do that, and I, I think sort of having this locked room... I mean, the thing about the locked room is that you've, uh, you have no appeals to authority. You also don't have anyone telling you what you're doing is forbidden. The laws that you obeyed are the laws of the complex in this one. So um, there's no real laws. There's, there's no laws saying you can't take the lives of your um, your fellows from other worlds. And they end up realising that that would be a dumb idea because then they would actually weaken themselves by doing so. Last thoughts on this one about the actual setup, though. Um, emulating a murder mystery is hard. Well, I would expect it to be hard. I would not. I would certainly try not try to do it on my own without a lot of planning. Um, kudos to scenario writers who write those. Um, one of the problems I think you have with the murder mystery in general is that uh, you know you're well you're relying on the that the right narrative beats happen at the right time. That's one problem that you should really not try to make happen in a role-playing game for obvious reasons. The other thing you can't rely on is characters making intuitive leaps based on evidence. You know, most of these kinds of games are investigations rather than whodunits. By that, I mean, in investigation, the evidence is all there in plain sight. It needs to be assembled. You need to go to where the evidence is, but you gather it and assemble it. And a murder mystery isn't like that. Murder mystery is much more nuanced and it requires people to make certain assumptions and certain mental connections. And there are good games that um, that prompt players to do that based on the evidence. Um, Lovecraft-esque is one of them, I think, although I think it's... I'm, I'm not sure I've ever played that. I've read it, but um, I, 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 I know it works. But... Um, but that is not the kind of game I'm talking about. The kind of game I'm talking about right now is relatively traditional investigative mystery type gaming. The last thing that obviously makes a murder mystery particularly difficult is that is that uh, one person's the murderer. And not only that one person's the murderer, everyone is behaving in a sketchy way that means they get accused of being the murderer. They, they, all, they all fall under suspicion at one time or another. And... Um, players will often say, no, I have an alibi. Cut that conversation dead. doesn't work quite so well unless you've got uh, a really elaborate and well-thought-out set of pre-generated characters. Okay, I think I've said enough about the setting. The last thing I want to talk about is Thanagy and magic and the way that it's bound into the setting. And this will be also related to some of the, the other media stuff I say at the end. But in this world... It's not just that we have lots of different branches of magic. You have one underlying philosophy of magic, which is related to death and the worlds between, you know, this world and the next world and the in-between and the energies of death and the way that you can animate people uh, and siphon souls and various other things. So it, it all it, it's all very internally consistent. And that is one of the things that makes it really compelling. That's one of the things that allows Muir to actually talk about magical theorems because there is already obviously a consistency of magical theory 
throughout the whole practice of necromancy. Now, each of the houses have their own specialities and their own twists on it, but they all think in terms of the same magical environment. You couldn't do that with, say, Mage the Ascension, uh, because all magical theory in Mage the Ascension is entirely subjective, which actually makes it really boring. Um, that's one of the things, reasons, that's one of the reasons that no, I used to love Mage, but actually I I much prefer the other World of Darkness games. You know, Vampire and Wraith are probably the ones that I would go to. Um, Changeling even, I think, has a better magic system, simply because it, it's it's kind of consistent in tone. Um, but then the other thing, of course, about this particular book is the way that magic is baked into the setting. The idea that you have an empire that is interested in, in expansion um, and fighting its enemies and wholly predicated on a kind of immortality that is tied into the base magical theory itself. The way that immortality is achieved by the Lictors is part of the magic and uh, and so you've you kind of you've got a sort of right from the very top down you have a consistent magical theory and a framework that you're working within now is that interesting to get into in role playing i'm not sure i certainly think that focusing it like that and saying there is a scope in which we operate there are things that magic manipulates and things that it doesn't manipulate that i think is is a useful boundary to set so necromancy can do interesting things with souls it can do interesting things with connecting souls together seeing through other people's eyes um psychometry um and obviously animating skeletons and and making physical things as well so there is a certain amount of physicality to the magic as well um and there's um I mean, there's, there's some real physicality to the magic in parts of the book where it talks, it, it makes these descriptions of, you know, blood and lymph and sinew and fat and bone all being part of the building blocks of, well, uh, golems, basically, magical constructs, barriers that are conjured, all of these things. So there is this kind of uh, thing. That, and, and I think that that makes for a really interesting magical system because then you can say, to your players, here's the boundaries of the magic. Push them wherever you want to go. Construct your own theories about what lies within this setting. Um, I guess there's a there's always a risk where you 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 um, get into mother may I systems of does my magic do this? And the players asking the ref all the time. Um, but again, going back to this idea about trust at the table, I think that. You set these boundaries and you trust your players and they trust you. Um, they will they will not push it in the wrong direction. They will, um, I would hope, not try to, you know, cheapen the whole thing by just trying to expand the scope of magic to do things that aren't really in keeping with the theory or the tone of necromancy or um, changelings, glamours and whimsy and that sort of thing. So um, I think there's a lot to be said for having a, a sort of a very flavorful and setting influenced consistent magic system because then you're, you're basically just like a sandbox you're setting the boundaries in which the characters can uh, explore their magical powers and um, and the same goes for the GM obviously as well that they can say well if these are the magical principles on which this world is based what does that mean for 
the scenarios that I'm doing, what does it mean for the villains? How did they use those powers to their advantage and how then might they oppose the PCs? And since I'm thinking about this, um, I think what I'm going to do is is now move on from the, the remarks because that was my final part of the analysis bit and talk about the media section where I only really have one other piece of media I want to talk about, which is Garth Nix's Sabriel. I have to mention Sabriel because, of course, we're talking about necromancers. Of course, in Sabriel, the necromancers are the bad guys. Necromancers are people who are opposed to the natural order of things, where they encourage the dead to come back. And there are also things about um, the dead intentionally clinging onto life when actually they should be progressing through the nine gates of death and... Um, and not coming back, clawing their way back to the living world. Now, um, one of the reasons I wanted to mention Sabriel was to do with the consistency of the magic. You know, for, the, for exactly the same reasons that I mentioned earlier about Gideon the Ninth, um, Sabriel also has a very consistent, flavorful set of magic. Um, it's all to do with the Charter Stones and the Great Charter and the and the thinness between life and death. Um, necromancy is a matter of dominating the dead and that's pretty much the that that's most of the magic that we see certainly Sabriel being an Aporson um, or an Aporson in training she gets to use the bells of the Aporson which all have a different effect on the dead they give the dead a voice or they they send the dead back into death or they command the dead to come so um, and they're all based around bells which is really cool um but that that's basically all the magic that there is so there's no flying there's no lightning bolts or anything like that um there are elementals there are other creatures that can do great harm and produce magic-like effects there are other bloodlines like the claire who can do other things like see into the future but it, it's basically it's all all the magic is to do with charter marks and the charter so there's a there is a broader magic that's available as well to do with charter marks but most of this to do with charter mages is again to do with opposing those who would defy death and so again you've got this narrow scope of what you can actually do with magic um, now i must say i haven't read the most recent ones and i expect there are counter examples because it's a while since i've read uh, the original trilogy but i think in general that is true that there's a very specific theory of magic that is then baked into the setting as well and the setting enhances the magic and the magic enhances the setting and they, they both you know there's a wonderful synergy there and i got exactly the same feeling from gideon the ninth the other things that are, are notable i guess you know gideon feels like a ya novel because it's fast-paced because it's very character focused and a lot of it is to do with the development of gideon and gideon's bff but not bff harrowhawk um and a lot of ya is going to be focused on a character arc because of the age of the protagonists um so I would say that Gideon feels like a YA novel, even though it isn't because, you know, it's death and murder and sex and all sorts of stuff. Um, although you know, YA does have a lot of death and murder and sex and stuff. So, you yeah, know, fair enough. Um, obviously, um, Sabriel has a female protagonist. Um, that shouldn't really be remarkable, should it? Um, but anyway, um, great character, Sabriel. Really wonderful. Um, and... 
it's almost as if Gideon and Harrowhawk are two sides of the character that the Abhorson is. The Abhorson isn't this absolutely magnificent sword fighter. Um, although, of course, Sabriel teams up with Touchstone partway through the first book, and Touchstone does take on the, the role of being the cavalier to Sabriel's necromancer. Anyway, I recommend Sabriel very highly. Um, it does the, the YA thing that I think that um, you know, we should take notice of, which is its pace is superb. Uh, it's very focused on the plot arc as well as the character arc, just like this. Um, and so uh, that's my recommendation, particularly if you like necromancers. All right, then. I think that's the end of the episode. First of all, thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, you know, you can do the usual like, share, subscribe, promote um, on the social media outlets of your choice. Uh, and also, there is a Fictoplasm Patreon. So, you know, just look for Fictoplasm on Patreon. There's a couple of levels, um, and all patrons, in addition to obviously supporting this podcast, get a piece of writing from me once a month. And then the upper tiers also get to be part of the community that um, suggests new books. The music for this podcast, as always, is by Chris Zabriski. Uh, go to chriszabriski.com for more details. It's in the show notes. Um, apart from that, thanks for listening, and um, until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>